And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. May God add his, bless add his blessings to this reading from 1 John chapter 4, 9 through 12. Today's one of those days I wish the song service could have followed the sermon. Uh, John picked out some wonderful songs to support what we're going to say from Scripture today. Causes all kinds of logistical problems if we try to have the sermon first and the song second in regard to getting our kids to Bible hour and back. So we're, we're kind of stuck with the way we do it. But I hope it got in your minds thinking along the thing, uh, theme of love. Last month, Debbie and I celebrated our 42nd wedding anniversary. Uh, I'm happy to say I really do love that woman. But then again, I love bluebell ice cream. I love watermelon. And I love my grandchildren. I love stories with happy endings. I love fishing with my friends. <laughs> I love the road less taken. <laughs> That's supposed to be turned over right side up. If you ever drive like that, you're definitely on the road less taken. <laughs> and I love cheeseburgers. Um, I love my job. I love Friday night football. I love shrimp. Almost any way you cook it. I love acoustical guitar when it's done right. I love reading. I love God tried to find a picture of him, but none were available. I love this church. I love you. Well, most of you. <laughs> that word love covers a lot of territory, doesn't it? I mean, when I say I love watermelon, do I mean it's as important to me as my wife? Well, certainly not. When I say I love action movies, does that mean I have affection for them, feelings for them, like I have for my grandchildren? No way. The phrase I love 
is expansive and it covers a whole wide range of feelings. And unless we're aware of that, we run into some difficulty when we read the Bible. Because the good book commands us to love God. Okay, I can handle that one. Love your neighbor. Sometimes that gets a little bit harder. And love your enemy? Yikes. If we have this just undifferentiated definition of love, we're in trouble. It's mission impossible. It can't be done. And this is where the Greek language helps us. This is not going to be a sermon in Greek, but I think this part will be helpful. The Greeks had four words for love. One was eros, which referred to romantic love. Another was storge, which referred to family love, what parents feel for their children or brothers and sisters have for each other, you know, blood is thicker than water kind of love. They had phileia, which is friendship. Um, our city of brotherly love in America is Philadelphia, uh, coming from the Greek word phileia. And finally, the Greeks had a word for love that they rarely used in New Testament days. It was agape. And Christians latched on to this seldom used word because it describes the attitude we're called to have toward God, toward our spouse, toward our neighbors, toward our enemies. The section of John that we're covering today, uh, it uses the word agape, or a form of it, 24 times in 14 verses. So it behooves us to study, what does agape mean? I mean, after all, verse 8 says, whoever does not love does not know God. Now, again, lest you think this is a lesson in foreign language and it's a waste of your time, let me assure you that once you understand this concept, loving your enemy will no longer seem to be impossible. And... Loving your neighbor will take on some very practical meaning. And loving God, as well as God's love for us, will grow and enrich into a very comforting concept. Now here's the main thing to understand about agape love. It is not an emotion. Agape has nothing to do with liking. I can agape another person even though I don't like them. That's how we manage to love our enemies and sometimes our children, sometimes our neighbors. Like is a product of affection and attraction. Agape is a matter of the will. We decide to agape others. It's an intentional choice. Uh, the best definition uh, I found for agape, and there's what it looks like if you're into Greek, the best definition is to want the best thing for another person. See, I can want the best thing for my enemy, even though I don't like them and prefer 
to avoid them. I can want the best thing for my neighbor. Even though my neighbor has a dog that camps out under my bedroom window every night when it's time for me to go to sleep. I can still want the best thing for him. Maybe not for the dog, but for him. Agape is not a matter of affection. It's a matter of action. And without the action, it's not really love. Wanting the best thing for others must be followed by action in their interest. Otherwise, it's just a false claim. We see how that works in verses 9 and 10. God demonstrates it for us. This is how God showed his love among us not by talking about it. He sent his son, his one and only son, into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, agape love acts in the best interest of the object or person that's loved. And that's why John says in verses 21 and 22, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now the language there is gender neutral. He's just not talking about guys. It applies to sisters too. Remember what Jesus said when he walked the earth? By this shall all men know you are my disciples if you love one another. So let me reiterate. He doesn't say to like one another, to have fond affection toward one another, to get a kick out of each other, or to feel close to each other. He's talking about the way we choose to treat each other. And as I hopefully illustrated in my introduction, our English word for love is so much broader than what the Bible means by agape. And so when we read these passages, we're immediately struck with the impossibility of loving others like we love our close friends or spouse or family. So reframe in your mind, redefine. Loving others means acting in their best interest. Therefore, love for a child will include discipline because it's in their best interest. Love for your spouse will include those hard and awkward conversations sometimes in which you communicate your problems and your concerns so you can work through them and strengthen your relationship. It's in their best interest. Agape is an act of the will rather than a state of emotion. Uh, maybe, I, maybe I can illustrate it this way. Let's give today's various forms or concepts of love titles to help differentiate them from agape. I'm gonna call these love handles. Uh, something to give us a handle to hold on to to understand love. And the first one I'll call 
Strawberry Shortcake Love. Strawberry Shortcake Love consumes what it loves. Just like we consume strawberry shortcake, we say we love. Shortcake love loves for the sake of the one doing the loving, not for the sake of the one who is loved. It's selfish. It's self-centered. It only lasts until the cake has been consumed, or in the case of relationships, until the marriage has been milked dry, or the friendship is no longer beneficial, or the relationship no longer affords us an advantage, and so we just cast it aside. Oh, in the beginning, strawberry shortcake love is sweet and tasty, but it's usually short-lived. This is not what God has in mind when he says to love him or to love others. We might easily, or we might classify another type of love as Aunt Mimi love. Aunt Mimi is giving you the evil eye there. <laughs> we love Aunt Mimi because we're supposed to. You've got an Aunt Mimi. She just has a different name. <clears throat> or maybe it's an uncle. But the family rules require that you love them. She's our aunt, and we're stuck with our relatives. We never see her. We avoid her, if at all possible. We rarely think about her, <clears throat> and usually not positive thoughts. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, we probably won't visit her again until her funeral. But if somebody asks us, do you love Aunt Mimi? Without hesitation, we say, why, yes. Aunt Mimi love is not agape love. It falls short because it lacks action. Love without action is merely an empty word. Now, we've all experienced this one. Bowling league love. We love somebody as long as they keep the team average up. They benefit us, so we accept them. We rub shoulders with them, pat them on the back. We may even feel some affection for them. But the minute the average falls, the day they start hurting the team, we're through with them. Clearly, this is a very selfish form of so-called love that's based on our interest rather than on their interest. A fourth kind of love is little orphan Annie love. You know, we feel sorry for somebody and we think that it's love. It's not, at least not until we act on our concerns. Something in us hurts when we see an abandoned animal or child or an injured person, but that feeling is not agape love until we take action and do what we can. One other kind of love I'm, I'm going to call rain on the just and unjust love. This is God's love. God makes it rain on the just and the unjust. Doesn't always do it on our schedule, but he does it. Why? Because rain's good for us. God doesn't differentiate. He doesn't show favors. God loves 
because of who and what he is, not because of who and what we are. See, our natural tendency is to think people must deserve our love before we give it. God doesn't. So in verse 9, we're told that God loved us first. He doesn't just love us because we love him. He doesn't love us because we're so lovable. He loves us because it's his nature and his decision to love his creation. Now, John seems to have two major points he wants to get across in this section. One is that God loves us. He is love. God can't stop loving and still be God. And his second point is, as his children, we're called to love like him. That means we love others. We want good for them, even if we don't particularly like them or we can't gain an advantage from them. So he says in verse 7, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. And everybody who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. God is love. We are his children. So be like him. Love others. Based on who and what we are. Instead of who and what they are. Now, since we're called to love like God, let's review what his love looks like. I just want to go back to verses 9 and 10. God demonstrates his love. He sent his one and only son so that we could live through him. He loved us first, and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It kind of reminds you of John 3 and 16, doesn't it? For God so loved that he gave. Love that doesn't give is false love. Now this all sounds pie in the sky church talk. Until we compare it to real life. Because it's a mean world out there. Most people are focused on watching out for number one. And they make friends based on how that relationship will benefit them. Some are even prone to violent harm to get what they want. Others will manipulate to gain an advantage. It's a dog-eat-dog world. And in a dog-eat-dog world, everybody gets bitten sometimes or another. I was trying to imagine this week as I studied for this what a mess we would be in if God was a dog-eat-dog God. If he only blessed us when we could help him meet his goals. If he only loved us when he could use us and after he had used us up, he would cast us off. Make no mistake about it. That kind of selfish love, the love that rules our world, does not come from God. He calls us to a different standard. He demonstrates a different standard. And as his people, we choose to live by that different standard. And when we do, they will know we are Christians. 
Some people will be drawn to that. Others won't. But they will know. And God will be honored. Well, what happens if we take a risk and we live this way? Treating others like we want to be treated. Honoring them, even when they're not so honorable. Respecting them, even if they're disres disrespectable. Taking opportunities to bless them, even though we don't get anything out of it. What if we live that kind of life? The passage makes two beautiful promises. First, he says, we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world, we are like him, like God. Act like your father, and on judgment day, he will be proud to claim you. See, we were made in his image. And Satan does everything he can to distort that image. And when we choose... And it's an act of the will, remember, not an emotional response. When we choose to love others, we restore that image of God in the world. And then the second blessing he mentions is in the next sentence. We don't have to be afraid. There's no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. See, we can step out into our world with confidence and offer kindness the way Jesus did without fear. It might look very vulnerable and foolish to others. But anytime we love like God, that love will drive fear out of our hearts. One of the great self-delusions in the church today is how we talk a lot about loving God. And we like to come to a place like this and, if possible, express worship with great emotion. But then we turn around and we're so critical of other Christians, so ready to jump to negative conclusions about people, so slow to bear their burden, so unwilling to walk in their shoes, such lovelessness not only contradicts what we profess and disobeys what God commands, it becomes a major stumbling block to those people who don't yet know Christ. They don't see us loving each other, so they don't know. We're his disciples. The proof of love is not what you feel. It's not what you say. It's what we do. When we reach out to others to help them in their time of need. And the reward of love is great assurance and confidence before God. Let me suggest a view of the world that's quite different from what we see on the evening news or the political wranglings that are going on right now. I want to illustrate it with two brief scenarios. Scenario number one, imagine we're on a ship, but our ship is sinking. 
And while we're fleeing to the life rafts, you manage to grab a bag before everything goes to the bottom of the ocean. And unbeknownst to the rest of us, your bag contains a bottle of water and some canned beanie weenies. So there we are, huddled together in the raft, bobbing along in the open ocean. Eventually, we spot an island in the distance. We paddle toward it, but as we get closer, we're heartbroken to see that that island is incredibly bare. Not a stick of shrubbery, not a sign of fresh water. It's basically a big rock in the middle of the ocean, but it's our only hope. So we row toward that island. As we disembark our raft, the person standing next to you says, boy, am I thirsty. What are you going to do? Scenario number two, same deal. Our ship sinks, we flee to the life rafts. Unbeknownst to everybody, you have a bag containing water and some beanie weenies. As we drift along in the ocean, we spot an island in the distance and we paddle toward it. But this time we see it's a tropical paradise. Trees are just heavy with delicious fruit and a gushing fresh waterfall is in the distance. And we row toward the shore and as we disembark the boat, the person next to you says, boy, am I thirsty. What would you do? Well, in scenario two, we'd be much more likely to share our water with him, wouldn't we? We might even throw open the whole bag and say, beanie weenies for everybody, let's celebrate. In scenario two, we would treat our little bag of goods a lot differently. Why? Is it because we're a different person in scenario two? Are we suddenly more moral? Have we suddenly developed a heightened sense of ethical duty? Is our conscience stronger now? What changes between scenario one and scenario two? The only thing that changes is our vision of the situation. In the second scenario, we saw an abundance of life and it liberated us to be generous. And that's the only difference between these two scenarios. As people, we're still the same, same bundle of sins and selfishness we always had, but now we have seen the vision and we're celebrating. Now we're assured things are going to be okay. And our change of heart has nothing to do with the quality of our moral fiber or our strength of character. It has everything to do with what we see out there. And the reasoning John follows in 1 John 4 is, look, look at God. He offers abundance of life and love. Everything's going to be okay. We're in tropical paradise territory, people. So burst open your little bag and share the water in the beanie weenies. Let your vision of how the world can be be captured by God's view of reality. 
Love is better than hate. Sharing trumps hoarding. Action triumphs over apathy. And everybody matters. Because all are created in God's image. We're not in competition. We're in a race together, but we're not racing each other. You are loved. Now, go love others. You see, we're not headed toward a tropical island. We are residents in a kingdom of abundant life. In the middle of a world full of fear and selfishness. And so we really can't afford to crack open our little stashes and be generous with our meager supplies because in the end, love wins. Selfishness loses. And we will be the biggest losers of all if we choose to live burdened down by spite and hate and vengeance and self-centeredness. God first loved us. Now, let's go love others. One of the ways we try to demonstrate love at this church is by always offering you the opportunity to pray or to counsel with our church shepherds at the end of a service like this or to be buried with Christ in baptism. And we know you need a few seconds to contemplate that. So we sing a song. It's a song of love. A song of invitation. Saying we're here to help you. How can we do it? You can either meet our shepherds at the back of the building. Or you can meet some shepherds or me here at the front. Let's stand together and sing.